The following message is entitled, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 4. This message was given during the evening service on July 17, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 4. I will stay with that sermon title until I finish verse 6. There are four marks, as I mentioned, to the congregation and I'm repeating it for those outside the congregation who may be listening to a recording. Again, the four marks of Christian suffering that we're to have joy in the midst of are in verse 6 of 1 Peter 1. Number one, even though now for a little while, that brings up the issue of endurance. Number two, necessity. Number three, distress. And number four, various. These are the four marks of all Christian suffering. He's talking to believers in 1 Peter chapter 1 because he's talking about how in verse 3 that the mercy of the Lord has caused us to be born again. Our topic in the morning is mercy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we who are born again in verse 3 have a heavenly inheritance, verse 4, and have tremendous protection, verse 5. And that's the foundation for us to rejoice that we are saved by his mercy in verse 3 and he's protecting us, verse 5. And so we can rejoice while enduring suffering. And we're to endure it, as your introduction says in your note sheet, as long as it takes. I love Louis L'Amour novels. I've told you this before more than a few times, so I'm repeating this illustration from a previous sermon from years ago. Louis L'Amour has been dead since 1988, uh, the, the most prolific author in American history in predominantly Western novels. There are still over 120 of his Western novels in print, and I own every last one of them. I am sometimes amazed myself. Thankfully, we're not studying pride tonight. I've read almost every one of them twice. The mantra or the philosophy of a Louis L'Amour Western novel is simple. These are the fundamentals of a L'Amour Western novel. And I think this is why I like his books. The mantra or the philosophy is this. Always do what's right, no matter the cost. Fight for truth. Live morally and honorably. Always tell the truth, for your word is your bond. Never give up. And then Louis L'Amour has hit on a very interesting Christian principle. Those are all somewhat flavored with Christianity. But he's talked about this, and certainly we realize it in our world. It's a fundamental of life on this planet, and his books bring this up. Righteousness is almost always overwhelmingly outnumbered by evil. In my top five favorite Louis L'Amour novels sits one of his monumental masterpieces, Crossfire Trail. The protagonist, that's a fancy word for the hero. The protagonist is Rafe Covington. He promises his dying friend on a ship that they got shanghaied onto. And his friend is dying because the psycho captain beat his friend nearly to death for trying to escape. So the protagonist, Rafe Covington, promises his dying friend in the hold of the ship that they were shanghaied onto that he was, um, he knew he was dying. 
And Rafe promised his dying friend that he'd get the man's ranch back from very powerful and evil people who stole it and get it back for his soon-to-be widowed wife who's destitute. So as Rafe's friend lay dying from a horrible beating, his friend who was dying said, Promise me, Rafe. Please promise me. And Rafe stared at him and said, I will. Later on in the book, the antagonist, that means the bad guy, who realizes that Rafe is intending to do just that, get the ranch of his dead friend back for his dead friend's wife, says this in the book. The enemy says this. Who risks his life to keep a promise to a dead man? What a dinosaur. Well, well that's us. Uh, Christ died for us, right? So we're to risk our life for a dead man, but of course he overpowered death. My favorite line in the novel is when Rafe is leaning on the widow's corral fence. They just kind of, he and his buddies moved in on the property to the utter consternation of the antagonists. He's leaning on the corral fence post. The sun is setting and he and two of his friends are basically now in a fight for their lives for his dead friend's ranch. His friend died in the hold of that ship after Rafe promised that he would help him. One of Rafe's sailing buddies, they were able to escape from the ship. Um, one of the friends of Rafe Covington says, Rafe, how long do we have to do this? And Rafe steeled his eyes towards his young man's master and said soberly, your line and your introduction, as long as it takes. I love that. John, how long must we suffer in this life? God says, as long as it takes. Lord, how long do I have to have this problem in my life not go away? To be honest, Lord, I don't like what's in my life with suffering. Could you please tell me how long I have to do this? See that little while in verse 6? We can't quantify that. How long is a little while? As long as it takes. Very good. Enduring under suffering is an absolutely vital key to having super joy in the midst of suffering. This is our Sunday night series, obviously. In your introduction, endurance is defined for you by that phrase, as long as it takes, to remain under Write it down. It is a virtue. Write that down. A spiritual virtue we looked at last Sunday night. Spiritual endurance is to remain under as long as it takes. As God decides what the little while is. He brings the suffering in. He plants it in our lives. And he determines when it is to leave. We don't like that. None of us like that. We don't like endurance. We don't like suffering for as long as it takes. And we don't like the fact that God determines that. We saw today that Jehoshaphat decided to do what he wanted to do. 
Saul as well, we saw this morning in the sermon that he didn't like waiting so long for Samuel to arrive. So he decided to take matters into his own hands, just like Jehoshaphat, and, and usually we do as well. Let's be honest. On line number three, you can write down, spiritual endurance is a virtue we hate. We hate it. I've mumbled under my breath from suffering these words, I hate this. We've all done that. Spiritual endurance is a good thing. When I say it's a virtue, that means it is necessary for us to grow. Notice it says in verse 6, even though now for a little while, an unknown commodity of time, you have been passed up until present. Passed up until present, have been distressed by trials. God determines the length and duration. We hate that. And Christians are strongholded by the view that waiting for God to end the suffering is a virtue. We're strongholded by that. A hate for that. Do you know what a stronghold is? Don't guess. As you know, and Randy said it in a Sunday school class more than a few times, don't guess at a truth if you don't know what it means. But 2 Corinthians 10, not 1 Corinthians, which we will be going for, towards. And I find it interesting that the two tens, 1 Corinthians 10 and 2 Corinthians 10, are dealing with various aspects of the exact same thing. 1 Corinthians 10, which is the backside of your note sheet, deals with the trials that come our way, that don't let go. And 2 Corinthians 10 deals with what happens if you mess around with suffering or any other false idea in your mind. Paul is suffering greatly at the hands of the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 10. And... In verse 1, he says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. That seems to be one of their accusations. Oh, he acts like a whipped puppy around us, but then he gets all nasty and bold when he writes us. Verse 2, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with a confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some. He's saying, Deal with your house. Get your house in order, Corinthians, so I don't have to come and be bold in person. And these enemies of Paul basically regard Paul and the apostles as if we walked according to the flesh. Flesh there would refer to being carnal or backslidden. Can you imagine a church accusing Paul of being carnal? Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, that's physical flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, that's a spiritual commodity. That's the verse, by the way, that says you can't fix spiritual problems with a physical solution. Do you see that in verse 3? We do not war according to the physical. We walk in the physical, but we do not war as a soldier. The weapons of our warfare are not, verse 4, of the flesh. That's not referring to the old nature. Their accusation in verse 2 is that he's fleshly spiritually. He uses the same word in the Greek for flesh in verses 3 and 4 to refer to physicality. That's why context is the only way to determine what the word flesh means. 
in the New Testament. So the weapons of our warfare, verse 4, are not of the physical variety, but divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds, fortresses. The last word of verse 4. Does anybody know what a stronghold is, both physically and spiritually, without guessing? You've studied this. All right. The word means physically a military fortress. That's what it is. A, a, an impenetrable prison fortress. No one's getting in. No one's getting out. Akuroma. But he's not talking about a physical fortress that he's fighting against because he just said we walk in the flesh but we do not war in verse 3 according to the flesh. So the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds. What is a fortress spiritually? It is an opinion that a Christian will go to the grave on believing is true when it is not. This is extremely important. It is a thought raised up in the mind of a believer that nothing can penetrate it and remove it. Especially a physical confrontation of some type. And the reason we know that the fortress he's referring to are wrong thoughts is because of verse 5. Destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. A stronghold is a belief in something that I will not give up. And it goes against the word of God, but it doesn't matter. Nobody is going to tell me that I'm wrong. That's a fortress. That's a strongholded idea. Speculations in verse 5. Lagismas. It's a thought that is reasonable and opinionated. I have an opinion that is reasonable. You aren't going to convince me otherwise. That's a fortress. I hold to this view in my mind. How do you defend it from the Bible? I don't need to. I know it's true. That's a fortress. The word thoughts in verse 5. Taking every thought captive is noema, conclusions of the mind. We are taking conclusions captive. He's warring against false thinking with the Corinthians. Only God can do that. Only he is divinely powerful through the word of God to do that. He's seeking to punish disobedience. Disobedience then in verse 6 is defined as a strongholded view in a believer's mind. An opinion that cannot be breached. It is a prison within the mind. I hold to this and nothing's going to crack it. I've run into this many times. Over the years as a pastor running into Christians who are like this. A strongholded idea. What is the strongholded idea in our series here? Go back to 1 Peter 1.6 that most Christians hold to. The strongholded or fortressed idea is very simple. Suffering is bad. Endurance is bad. I hate endurance. I hate suffering. I need to flee suffering and renounce endurance. That is a strong-holded view 
among believers in the church. And I've shown you that so many times before. Divorce and remarriage in the church, which is liberalized over the last 40 years, is because I refuse to endure a bad marriage. Christians who leave communities because it's dangerous refuse to endure bad areas. Quit jobs because of suffering. Quit churches because I don't want to endure hardship at that church. These are strongholded ideas. You understand that if you have a strongholded opinion, nothing's going to break that. Nothing. I could have a video showing your crime committed and you would still reject it. Okay? How does a believer get strongholded? It doesn't happen to growing Christians. You should write that down. Growing Christians don't get strongholded. We struggle with wrong thinking, but we always, who are godly, go back to the Bible to resolve it. A stronghold of believer, it's irrelevant to them what the Bible says. Write that down. I don't care what the Bible says. I've had Christians tell me that. I don't care what you say. Well, here it's in the Bible. I don't care. See, a Christian I had in my office I've told you about before who ridiculed me for teaching Christians years and years ago member of this church, enraged at me, sat in my office. This is wrong what you're doing. This is wrong, I said to her. You're in rebellion. The Bible is, tells me in Ephesians 4 to equip the saints. The look I got. Okay, ma'am. You give me that look, I said. Now let me show you right here. Look, look at that. And she went like this. No, I brought it around her face. That's who gets strongholded. It's the person who can sit in a pew and say to anything plainly shown from the scriptures and say, I don't believe that. It is rebellion at best and apostasy at worst. Godly Christians don't do this. We're obsessed with being accurate with the word. We don't trust ourselves. Write this down. Strongholded believers trust their own minds. They don't trust God, but they trust themselves. I know what I believe. No one's going to convince me otherwise. A stronghold. So in 1 Peter 1.6, this whole idea that uh, as long as it takes, this is endurance, this is good. No. No, no, it is. See, look at that, verse 7. Put your eyes right on it. It says that suffering and remaining under for whatever time God deems fit for you proves you have real faith. No. I remember years ago, a couple in this church decided to quit the church because... We didn't have a youth ministry. I said, well, youth ministry is not in the Bible. I don't care. That's what I got back. That's not a reason to separate from a church because we don't have a youth ministry. You know how many Christians are strongholded by that one? Oh, like I said, check the list off. I got to have the right music. Not in the Bible. I got to have children's ministries. Not in the Bible. And I need a youth ministry. Not in the Bible. I don't care that those three things aren't in the Bible i got to have these, so we're going somewhere else. That's stronghold of belief. You can't fix this. Only the divine, back in 2 Corinthians 10.4, can fix strongholded ideas. 
remember when I taught that series on legalism and then we ended it with food law legalism and I talked about how deep that was in our church. And I remember back then a few years ago, I, I, sp I foolishly, I guess, spent 26 sermons plumbing the depths of legalism. He should have lynched me out back in the, off the, the Randy's back steps here and let me bounce around on the end of the rope after that. But um, be that as it may, I just heard prolific legalism abounding for, out of the mouths of believers after that. Why? Because it's stronghold. Only a mind that is fearful of what we believe by ourselves and desperately wanting to only think like the mind of Christ is not strongholded. You must be a godly believer who does not trust your thinking unless it's proven from Scripture. To say to anything that is taught to you accurately, I don't believe that, means you're gone spiritually. You've been strongholded. It's a very deadly deadly passage back there. And, and, and Paul says, I, I have to punish your disobedience for this. It's just sheer rebellion. As he said in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 6. So, as long as it takes is a virtue. How long am I supposed to remain in his suffering, John? As long as it takes. Who determines that? God. Why should I trust God? Well, how about going back to verse 3? Huh? There's a little reason. Let's, let's, let's just pull that out, shall we? Let's all be the rebels up in my office from decades ago. And why should I sit under suffering of any degree to, as, and let God determine when it ends? Well, how, how about going back to that mercy caused me to born again? See that right there? See that? Anybody metaphorically in your heart turning your eyes away? Huh? Huh? If he mercifully saved us, I think he can handle our trials. What do you think? Huh? Possible? It's too much for me. Oh, really? Since when are you supposed to deal with the suffering? God is in charge of that. You aren't supposed to figure out how to whip the suffering. What are you and I supposed to do? Joy, endurance. I hate endurance. Well, Jesus, the Bible says Jesus endured the cross. So I guess he sinned when he went to the cross, didn't he? He endured it all the way. Endured. Right? Jesus did. Eh? For you, for me. But it's bad when we have to. The Bible says he endured to the end. Whatever it takes to the end. In that novel, Rafe Covington virtually loses everyone around him. The young guy that was talking to him at the fence post. Rafe, how long do we have to fight for what's right here? And he said, as long as it takes. Just a few days later, that young man standing in the ranch in a wicked, high-powered marksman, miles away on a hill, kills him in cold blood with a long-range shot to the head. Just because you and I are called to endure doesn't mean God is going to let everything be peaches and cream. If he endured unto death and Paul endured unto death, it is possible for us. So you can see in your outline, we're in this mark number one. Christian suffering is temporary, and that sounds good, but temporary simply means an unknown length of time in this life. 
That's what even now for a little while, it is purposely vague. The Spirit says, I'm not telling you how long each of your trials are. Man, we could do great on that one. We just backslide like crazy until the calendar date comes up when it ends, and then we repent and get right with God. It's purposely vague right there in your note sheet, Mark number one underneath it, even though now for a little while. What we know about even though now is number one under that mark is that suffering is an everyday potential, as your note says. And number two, for a little while, is referring to an unknown time of duration. It's little only in comparison to eternity. We don't have any idea how long any trial will come. And since James 1 tells us they intersect us when we're least aware, things will always bludgeon us and attack us, and we weren't prepared for it. That's because God's the one orchestrating it. And if he's orchestrating it, it's up to him to decide when it ends. We're to stay put. It, endurance, hupameno, means to remain under suffering. There's only two times you're to flee suffering that I have found in the New Testament, make a decision proactively to get out from under it, is if the suffering is asking you to compromise the word of God, or the suffering is demanding of you to commit a crime, then you say no and remove that suffering from you. Other than that, steps of a righteous man are ordained by who? And those steps include suffering? Yeah. Is suffering good? It produces a righteous outcome for us, according to James 1, and it proves to us and gives us assurance in verse 7. Suffering is good. The pain of the suffering, we don't love. We love the outcome, and we love the growth spiritually that can occur from it. So in verse 6, we're to have super joy, greatly rejoice, and then... Why are we looking at endurance? Because it says a little while. That, that begs the issue that you need to daily stay under the suffering. This would stabilize everything in the Christian life, as I've told you. Marriages would last longer. Christians wouldn't move out of bad communities. They wouldn't quit churches because somebody didn't say hi to me. And they certainly would not leave their jobs when they are called to endure suffering at the hands of coworkers unless and bosses unless the job is asking us to commit a crime or do something immoral. Then God's will kicks in, and God's will is never, according to 1 Thessalonians, that we should commit immoral things on behalf of unbelievers. So endurance is the name of the game, and that's why we go to 1 Corinthians 10, the other 10 passage now. In 1 Corinthians, and that's what we're studying, is grappling with and grasping this issue of endurance in 1 Corinthians 10. If I don't get this endurance right, I end up in 2 Corinthians 10, I become strongholded. I read one writer about fortress ideas in believers' minds. They become defensive, he said, and angry when their fortress of wrong thinking is confronted. If somebody presents the word of God to you, dear believer, and it contradicts your hardened views of your life, plainly contradicts and you get irritated and angry at that, you're fortressed. You're fortressed. Temptation here, number one under point five, perasmos. We looked at this. This is where we finished off last time. 
It can, context determines whether it means an elicitation to sin, which is temptation, or a hardship to be tested under. Context in Paul's passage uh, here and in other passages determines what we're talking about. We have to figure that out in verse 13. No temptation is overtaking you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation provide the way of escape so that you will be able to, here it is, endure it. Now, I have told you repeatedly that temptation is a horrible English translation. It's based on an interpretive decision that I think is dead wrong. Why? I don't know anywhere in the Bible where I am told that when I'm tempted to sin, I should endure that temptation. And what tempts me the most is my own mind. So if I have a wrong thought that's tempting me, I should remain under that wrong thought? That sounds like Satan's advice, not God's. Right? It says at the end of verse 13... So you'll be able to remain under it. The Bible never says remain under temptation. Now, we can be tempted by outside forces that we have no choice about, but we're not to dwell on it. Somebody walks up to you at work and starts telling you a dirty joke. Oh, well, okay, well, 1 Corinthians 10 13 tells me to endure under it. Hey, tell me another one. I'm just obeying the Bible, telling me a filthy joke, tempting me with your lascivious laughter and jokes, so I'm supposed to endure this, so I'm going to remain under it. So come on, tell me some more jokes. See, tell me. It says endure under temptation, so just keep tempting me. No. We can't stop the invitation that comes from the outside, but we can certainly walk away from it. Right? It's a foundation of separation from heresy. You don't sit under bad teaching. You don't sit under heretical teaching. You just separate from it. Why? Because it will tempt you to fall. That's my number one reason where you need to cross off everywhere you, where you see the word temptation, which, according to my New American Standard, is three times, and replace it with the word testing. No testing has overtaken you, who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able, but with the testing will provide the way of escape. What was the test for them? It goes back in verse 10. And there are various Old Testament stories that seem to be all intersecting this at the same time. Um, food temptation, wanting quail, uh, the sexual, horrible sexual party that occurred in verse 7 back in the Old Testament when Moses delayed up on the mount. Thirst and lack of water. But at the end of the day, the issue is in verse 10, grumbling. I'm grumbling because of suffering. That is where we fall. This is not a passage that Paul is trying to show us then that you'll always have an elicitation to evil and you just need to hang with it. It's about when we are tempted by sin by others or suffering under the hand of either God, Satan, or this world system. That I'm to endure. Number two in your note then. No temptation has seized you. <laughs> Overtaken you. Hmm. To actively lay hold of. Write that under number two. 
overtaken or seized you, actively laid hold of, to lay hold of by aggression, is perfect active indicative. No temptation has hit you in the past. No trial has hit you in the past and is actively and aggressively trying to take you down. What Paul is saying is, you're not unique. You're not. And neither am I. This is one of the strongholded ideas that we can just drum up in our minds. Fortress. Nobody suffers like I am. Nobody. It says right there in verse 13, but such as is common to man, that's unsaved man, any man, anthropos. Number three, common is anthropinos from anthropos, related to human nature. It is, it is a product of human nature, saved or unsaved, that we're going to suffer. Everybody has trials. What an insanity is a human being on this planet to try to run from suffering. Remember, not temptation, testing. Trials. So a lot of what we face is what you'll find unbelievers face too. That's why we're supposed to do it better than they do. Handle it. Because they have no resources. Your unbeliever will always attempt to fix suffering, which is a spiritual issue with a physical solution. And the way they fix suffering is to quit and run. So Paul starts off with the issue of the commonality of humanity common to man you think you've got it bad unsaved humans have it bad you're a human suffering is prevalent to all of humanity is what he's saying there when he says such is common to man you think you've got it really bad there are unbelievers suffering like you are and they don't have the resource of Jesus Christ this is Paul's point this shames us there are a lot of unsaved individuals who put on endurance from a human point of view. They stem the tide by mere human willpower and they endure. And we want to quit. I've always thought that about our church, how there are so many community activists that stay put in this community. Completely unsaved. Fighting for law and order, and they may be doing it in a perverted manner, but they, they've drawn a line in the sand in this community, and they're not quitting. But what happens to Christians? Gotta move. God doesn't want me to suffer. And anyways, if he opened up an opportunity to live in a beautiful area, it's got to be from him. It's astounding. The whole thing is inverted. We see human endurance in the face of great suffering. And Christians who crash and burn, Paul is really nailing us with that common to man phrase right there. And then he switches it to us. And God is faithful. He's not faithful to man. He says, who will not allow you so he says, your suffering is not unique. Mankind suffers. It's common. It is anthropinos. It is related to human nature to suffer continuously in this life. We come out screaming. 
and we die old and decrepit and full of pain and disillusionment <coughs> and suffering comes in between. <coughs> Excuse me. But we have a resource. Common to man, and then notice the contrast, verse 13, and God comes into the picture, not for mankind, will not allow you the believer. Nobody likes an unbeliever who whines and complains. It's even worse in verse 10 when it's believers that do it. Grumbling, as we saw last Sunday night in verse 10, leads to destruction. God reaches a point, <coughs> as we're learning on Sunday mornings, where the hourglass of sand runs out when we keep grumbling against suffering and God reaches a point that only he sovereignly knows where he says, no more mercy, I have had enough of you. Yeah, God does that. Where does he do that? He does it in verse 9 when we try and test the Lord. An abominable sin that Christians can do. So we don't want to be strongholded by the idea that I hate endurance, I hate suffering, I gotta get away from it, I can't take this anymore, whatever. That is a horrible state of mind to be in and it leads to destruction spiritually. Everything then from verse 13, God is faithful down to the end, says the solution is spiritual, not physical. Any suffering and hardship we have in our life is not solved by medical doctors. You say, well, I'm suffering and I need surgery. We're not talking about physical cures here. We're talking about spiritual problems. The suffering that crashes spiritual joy, the suffering that makes us be strongholded to believe that endurance is not a virtue, the suffering that we allow to tempt us to get out of God's will. It's a spiritual result that has to be protected Staying in God's will at all costs requires endurance and joy. We're not talking then if your car breaks down. That's not a physical issue. That's, a, that's not a spiritual issue. That's a physical issue that requires a physical solution. Take it to the mechanic. We're not talking about that I'm unemployed so I need to go get a job. That's a physical issue. We're talking about the spiritual suffering issues of life. That's the context of verse 13 and a wrong response that requires a correction, a major life correction. And if I don't, then I'll be strongholded. Maybe a physically broken down car requires a physical mechanic, but if I'm whining and griping about my car always breaking down, the mechanic can't fix that. That's profoundly basic, isn't it? A lot of our temptations fall into the physical realm of this world, but they intersect us and tempt us to have an unspiritual response to the physical issues of life. And everything goes back to our concept of God in verse 13. When he's unfaithful in my mind, then I will fix my problems myself. So we need to plumb the depths of that next phrase. Next time, number four, God is faithful. 
What have we learned then from this passage? Trials will overtake you. They will seize you when you least expect it. They overtake. Like somebody who's riding your bumper when you drive home. Tailgater. You can't stop that. You look in the rearview mirror and there he is. That's trials and suffering in our lives. You can't plan for them and you can't fix them. And they're common to humanity. Humans are poor schmucks. They try to correct their lives and their own resources. How pitiful. And then we come along and try to do the same. We're never to learn how to deal with suffering from an unbeliever. Ever. Take counsel from an unbeliever or anyone else who's lost or carnal. We need spiritual help for our spiritual responses that we need to have in the face of great suffering. So Paul is really laying it down on them. This is common to man. Who do you think you are as a Christian? That you've got something unique going on? Even unsaved man has bad stuff happen to them. And then next time he brings it, he brings it home. He points the gun at us as believers and he says, see, here's the core problem. Why do you, in verse 9, try the Lord? Why, in verse 10, do you grumble against the Lord? It is because of verse 13. God is unfaithful. That's the spiritual problem behind our refusing to endure. So, what do I do, you might say, John? What do I do? You need to examine your belief systems and ask the Lord, am I strongholded and fortressed? Am I imprisoned by my own thinking that has no basis in the scriptures? Every believer needs to reach a point of healthy distrust of their own minds. And say, God, I could very well be blind in the midst of my trials, blind to being strongholded by wrong thinking. And I think that my convictions are true when they are not. I need you as a celestial hound of heaven, as one theologian said years ago, to attack my thinking with the word of God, which means I need to be in much more prayer and study of the word of God so that I can have my mind transformed into the mind of Christ. I don't trust myself. That's the place to start when we're not handling suffering very well. We need to stop trusting ourselves. Trust Christ. Distrust yourself. It is a righteous thing to distrust your own mind. When you can't justify your convictions by the word of God, then you, that should be an alarming, an alarming position to be in. I have strong convictions that I can't defend from the word of God. That's a believer in major trouble. And we have to then, as we'll see next Sunday night, return to a faithful God. Solves everything. If he is truly and always faithful, state of being is, verb to be, then anything in our lives is still under his watch care of faithfulness, never to leave us, never to forsake us. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness always towards us. Mercies renewed, patience supreme, love that never ends. May we renounce our physical solutions to our spiritual problems. And may you drive our eyes and minds into the word of God to find out where our thinking is blindly in error 
where we believe opinions that aren't true and simply don't care. Oh, God, have mercy upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.